0: Greetings. This is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will look at Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. In the previous chapter, we saw Stephen arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin where false charges were brought against him. And as he calmly stood there, verse 15 says that, his face was like the face of an angel. In other words, he was literally glowing. This is not the first time in scripture where we see this happening. And uh, actually in Exodus, Exodus chapter uh, 34, we read about Moses and his experience with God. And whenever he would enter the tent of meeting where God would speak to him, giving him the wisdom and counsel that he needed, He literally would be in the holy presence of God. One day, Aaron and his sister Marion opposed Moses so strongly that God came and spoke to the three of them. It was quite a dramatic event, but let's read what God had to say about his relationship with Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, the Bible says this, Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses?" In other words, God spoke with Moses face to face, as friend to friend. Moses literally saw the form of the Lord. He was in the presence of the living God. And as a result, whenever he would step out of the tent of meeting, after being in the presence of God, his face would glow. It was the glow of the Holy Spirit resting upon him. Therefore, he learned to wear a veil over his face, so that the people would not see that glow fading away. That glow was something that was temporary. But ever since the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, in the words of scripture, our bodies now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now we too glow. Have you ever encountered a godly man or woman who literally glowed from the inside out? That person spends much time in prayer and in the Word of God. This is a glow that does not fade, but only grows as the power of the Holy Spirit fills their lives. Listen to this insight from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5-13. through Speaking of those whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the lord jesus that the life of jesus also may be manifested in our body for we who live are always delivered to death for jesus sake that the life of jesus may also be manifested in our mortal bodies so then death is working in us but life in you And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe, and therefore speak. You would have thought that this visual reminder on the face of Stephen would have created within those priests a point of caution and what they were about to do, but it did not. Instead, the high priest asked, Are these things so? Now remember, the high priest was referencing the charges that Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God and against the temple and against the law. This question proved Stephen, or provided Stephen, the opportunity to testify to them once again the gospel truth about Jesus Christ. And this time, The message is prefaced with a recounting of Old Testament truths, passages that they were very familiar with. Stephen's response is very long, and so I'm choosing to break down this chapter into three lessons. Today's lesson will cover verses 1 through 16 of chapter 7, so let us read what Stephen had to say on that day. Then the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And and from there, when his father was dead, God moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him give him a son and the land for possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God. And after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and And our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem. Let me say from the beginning that this chapter begins and ends with the glory of God. Once again, I want to make reference to the fact that Stephen was glowing with the power of the Holy Spirit and that he spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. By beginning with a recitation of Old Testament historical facts, he was establishing common ground with his audience. This walk through key events in their nation's history and the recounting of key spiritual leaders throughout that time reminded them that he too was a Jew and a descendant of the patriarchs. He emphasizes this by referring to them as brethren and fathers. But there is another point that he was making, which was actually the primary point, and that is how the nation responded to the people God had raised up. The first man addressed was Abraham, considered to be the father of the faith. As Stephen said, the God of glory appeared to abraham while he was living in ur of the chaldeans which today is located in southern iraq it was an idolatrous nation and abraham was also an idol worshiper at that time in his life but god chose him to be the father of a new nation therefore god revealed himself to abraham and called him out of that land and that idolatrous lifestyle to be a worshiper of the true and living God. In Isaiah 51, God said this to his people, Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. The relationship that God had with Abraham was based on love and grace. The relationship that Abraham had with God was based on faith in God's word and God's promises. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and brought him to the land of Canaan. That region is now known by the world as the land of Israel. Verse five of our passage said that God gave him no inheritance, but he did give him a promise, a promise that his descendants would possess the land, but only after 400 years and more of bondage and oppression. This delay was for God's express purposes. But that's a discussion for another day. And then God made a covenant with Abraham, and the sign of the covenant was circumcision, which Abraham and his descendants embraced, bearing on their body that they were in a covenant relationship with God. Dr. John Stott provides us with an excellent observation. We cannot miss Stephen's emphasis on the divine initiative. It was God who appeared, spoke, sent, promised, punished, and rescued. From Ur to Haran, from Haran to Canaan, from Canaan to Egypt, from Egypt back to Canaan again, God was directing each stage of his people's pilgrimage although the whole fertile crescent from the river euphrates to the river nile was the scene of their migrations god was with them why was this it was because he gave abraham the covenant of circumcision that is he made a solemn promise to abraham to bless him and his posterity and give him circumcision to signify and seal this covenant so abraham died and he died without ever possessing the land that god had promised to him except for a cave that he bought in which to bury his beloved sarah but he died believing that god would honor his promise even as it says in hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 through 10 whose builder and maker is God. But this wasn't the only promise of God that Abraham had believed. God promised him that he would make Abraham a nation that would bless the world and that kings would come from him and from his descendants. And God made this promise to Abraham and Sarah when Abraham was 75 years old and Sarah 65. Up until that time, Sarah was barren now it was too late for her to have a child but the scriptures say that abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness 25 years would pass before the child of the promise would be born and his name was isaac god kept his promise isaac would have two sons esau and jacob And Jacob, in turn, would have 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs. From the tribe of Judah, kings would be born, and from those kings, Jesus would be born. And he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. One day, soon, I hope, Jesus will come back and establish his kingdom on earth, when he will reign for a thousand years out of Jerusalem. It will be then that the fullness of all the promises that God made to Abraham will be fulfilled. In his argument, Stephen is pointing out from the beginning that God had been active in directing his eternal plan throughout the generations. As someone once said, Abraham had to believe the unfulfilled promises of God he had to look ahead in faith to what God was doing not to what seemed best or most logical God made a covenant with Abraham generations before the law was given to Moses on mount Sinai more generations would follow before the first temple was built by Solomon and in fact that the temple They were worshiping in, and Stephen's day was rebuilt by Herod. As the Jews had pointed out to Jesus, it took Herod 46 years to rebuild that temple. The question posed to Stephen at the onset was focused on Moses, the law, and the temple. However, Abraham lived generations before all these things ever came into existence. The focus of the priest was too much on temporal things, and not enough on what mattered most. In other words, as someone wrote, long before there was a holy place, there was a holy temple, a holy people, to whom God had pledged himself. He then renewed the promise he had made to Abraham, first to his son Isaac, and then to his grandson Jacob, and then to the great-grandsons, the twelve patriarchs. Thus. Stephen makes the transition from Abraham to Joseph. Stephen continued his argument by turning to the example of one of the patriarchs, Joseph. One may ask, why Joseph? He was not an ancestor of Jesus Christ, as he was the father of the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, and Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. But Joseph's life was unique in that in many ways, he was a type of Christ. He was hated by his brothers because he was his father's favorite. He was hated for his dreams, which told of his coming glory. And so they sold him to the Israelites who carried him down into Egypt. He was rejected at first, but the day came when his brethren bowed before him and recognized his authority. In Joseph, we see Jesus' first and second coming. Jesus was also hated by his brothers in his first coming. Both the sons of his mother and the sons of Abraham hated him. He is his father's favorite. We hear the voice of God saying at the beginning of his ministry, "'This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased.'" And again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God once again says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased hear him. Jesus told his disciples and his critics of his coming glory. When he would return, even to Pilate, a Gentile, he spoke these truths. Listen to this very bold and honest declaration. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again. Called Jesus and said to him, "Are you the King of the Jews?" Jesus answered him, "Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me?" Pilate answered, ha, "Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done?" Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world." If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So just as Joseph had been taken down to Egypt while he was still a baby, while he was still a baby, Jesus Jesus and his family traveled to Egypt in order to escape Herod's wicked scheme of killing the king of the Jews, thus maintaining his own seat of power. At that time, Herod issued the command to kill all of the children aged two and under in the region where Jesus was known to live. You know, in scripture, Egypt is often used as a metaphor for sin. For example, I was lost in the Egypt of my sin, suffering under the bondage of sin and death, but I have been redeemed purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been released from my bondage to sin and death, delivered out of the Egypt of my sinful life, and I have been brought into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of, of life, the kingdom of his righteousness. So once again, let me ask this question. Why Joseph? Because at first Joseph was rejected by his brethren, but then later after his exaltation, he became number two in the land. He was reunited with his brethren and they believed all that he had told them so many years ago. So they yielded to his authority and they were reconciled back to their brother. There is coming a day when Jesus will return to earth and rule, sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem. It has been written that it is then that the Jewish nation will believe that Jesus, the one they had crucified, is the promised Messiah, the Holy One of God, Redeemer, Savior, and their King. This is confirmed in Zechariah 12, verse 10, where we read, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look upon me, Whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. The point that Stephen is making to those listening to him on that day is that they too had rejected Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. But just like with Joseph, there will come a day when they will believe that Jesus is everything he said he is. You know, it is not just the Jews who will see Jesus at his return. That will be a very dramatic day because when he returns, he will come in the clouds and all the hosts of heaven and with his church will be returning with him. On that day, as it says in Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Listen to the following observation one writer makes. Stephen recognized the amazing way in which Joseph's life paralleled and pointed ahead to the life of Christ. The similarities are startling. Both loved by their fathers, hated by their brothers, taken to Egypt, falsely accused, exalted after suffering, forgave the ones who wronged them, and saved their nation. Because God wants us to know him, He has left evidence of his existence, activity, and plan throughout the universe in our lives. Are we like the religious leaders who listen to Stephen? Are we so caught up in our prideful presumptions that we are missing the divine clues all around us? We must open our eyes and see God's divine plan at work in history. So let me ask you this. What do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is God, the Son, the Savior of the world? Do you believe that Jesus came to earth out of heaven and lived among men, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead for our justification, just as the scripture says? Do you believe that Jesus ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God, ever interceding for us? Do you believe that Jesus will one day come back again as King of Kings and Lord of Lords to rule over the nations of the earth out of Jerusalem just as he promised he would? Do you believe that Jesus loves you just as you are right now? That he does not ask you to fix your life before you come to him? He died for you just as you are. The Bible says in Romans 5, for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Remember, God doesn't say that you have to be perfect and then he will accept you, love you, and save you. He says that all you need to do is confess that you are a sinner and come to the cross. Come to Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who died for you. He is willing to forgive you and lift you up and bestow upon you the gift of everlasting life. Even as the Bible promises, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Will you call to him right now and say, Jesus, please forgive me. Please me, my Savior and Lord. If you pray that simple prayer with a sincere heart, he will answer and forgive and make you his own dear child. Heavenly Father, Thank you, O God, for giving to us Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth and living among men, for being willing to die upon the cross in payment for our sin. We praise you that you rose from the dead and that you've ascended on high. You have become, O God, our Savior, our Lord, and our King, and we worship you this day. I pray, O God, that we might know you more and more, that we would be people of faith, men and women of faith, boys and girls of faith, like Abraham and like Joseph, who lived for you, who testified about you, who trusted in you and believed in your promises. Teach us, O Lord, and strengthen our faith. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, until next time, my friend, may you rejoice in the love of God our Savior, and may God richly bless you.